please turn with me to Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. As we start, I got an illustration here. It's for you students, okay? It's for you. Just work with me now on this, uh, this illustration. I just want you to imagine something really tragic uh, happened in your life, and that is that your, your parents went to the University of Texas. And they insisted that the only place you could go to school is the University of Texas. It's the only place they're going to... I know. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing. Just imagine this. And there's no other choice you have. You have to enroll there. You sign up for classes. You go to move to Austin. You're a student at the University of Texas. But you know in your heart of your hearts that really you're an Aggie. That's right. You know it. And so because you know in your heart of hearts that you're really an Aggie... Uh, every day when you go to class, you put on a maroon polo, you put on maroon pants, you go to a formal, you wear a maroon blazer, a maroon dress, right? You, you're walking across campus, you see somebody, you say howdy, right? You don't care if you're in Austin, you say howdy and something good happens. You say gigum, you say whoop, right? This, because you know in your heart of hearts, you really don't belong here in Austin because you're really an Aggie. And so you always feel a bit out of place, right? Okay, now. I'm going to take a hard turn with this metaphor. So hang with me. That's how we should feel as Christians in the world. Now, again, apologies to my friends who went to the University of Texas. <laughs> Don't extrapolate too far. I'm not saying that all Longhorns are pagans and all Aggies are really righteous people, right? So don't even go there. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying we should feel out of place. As Christians, that's, that's normal. In this world, we should always feel like we are out of step with the world. And I'm going to argue that in this country, that's going to become increasingly obvious in our lives. So if you look back just to the early 1990s, 90% of Americans identified as Christians. That's just the early 1990s. In the last 30 years, that, that percentage has declined 30 points. It's around 60%, and that's accelerating, which means uh, previously, for a long period of time in the history of this country, Christian values were respected and honored and even reflected in the way that people lived their lives. If not Christian doctrine or faith, at least Christian values. But what's happening is the culture is turning further and further and further away from Christian values. And so you should expect as a follower of Jesus in this country that you will feel more and more out of step with the culture around you. You just don't fit in. And I don't say that so that we'll all have this like widespread panic and go, oh my gosh, I better post something on social media to stop the trend. That was sarcastic, purely sarcastic, right? That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that's normal. And for the history of the church, that's been the believer's experience. Certainly true in the Apostles, in Apostle Paul's day, right? He, he's writing this book of, of Romans to Roman Christians who are just this tiny minority living in the capital city of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire and the culture around them is thoroughly pagan and idolatrous and sensual and sexualized and materialistic and hedonistic. I mean, they, they do not fit in. They, they're out of step with the culture. And so in chapter 13, he turns and he begins to address this issue with them and, and try to help them understand how do we live in a way that honors Jesus in a world that does not. Right, so Romans 13 is, is very, very applicable to our lives. How do we live in the midst of a culture, a world, a surrounding way that honors Jesus when the world does not, when we are out of step with the culture? 
And Paul's going to give them three exhortations. It's not an exhaustive list. He probably could have come up with 30 more. Uh, None of his exhortations include posting to social media at all, right? But there are three really timely things that apply directly to our experience. Now, before we get to those, I want to do a little bit of of review. I was out for a couple weeks, so let's just uh, review. Where are we in the book of Romans? Well, let's start at the beginning. The theme of the book of Romans is this. The gospel is good news. Right, the word gospel literally means good news, and the book of Romans is this thorough exposition of the gospel. Theme verse, Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul says, The gospel is the best news ever because it reveals the righteousness of God. And it reveals that you can receive God's righteousness by grace through faith. And that's true for everyone. Jew or non-Jew, old, young, male, female, rich and poor. You can be put into right relationship with God simply as a gift that you receive by faith. So as Paul develops his argument... He actually starts with this thematic statement and then he goes to the bad news, which is you're not righteous. There's none righteous, not even one. It's true of Jew, it's true of Gentile, it's true of the the pagan person, it's true of the self-righteous person, it's true of absolutely every person. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? If the standard to have relationship with God is his absolute perfection or his glory, all of us fall short of that. What's the solution? In the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Our debt of sin has been paid for. And if we believe in Jesus, he declares us to be in right relationship with him. That's justification by faith, right? So justification is not being made righteous. It's being declared righteous. God says, you are now rightly related with me because you have identified yourself with Jesus Christ. You are right with God. You receive as a gift the righteousness of Christ in place of your own unrighteousness. Now, God doesn't leave us there. He also does want to make us righteous. That is, transform us into the image of Christ. That's chapters 6 through 8, right? So 1 through 3 is the bad news. 3 through 5, justification by faith. 6 through 8 is sanctification by faith. That is, becoming more and more and more like Jesus as we submit to the Spirit's work in our lives. And we understand that we are now identified with Jesus Christ. We have a choice to say no to sin and to say yes to the Spirit's movement. He changes us and we become more and more and more like Jesus. That's incredibly good news. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, which is in, love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how he ends chapter eight. Chapter nine, he shifts gears. He says, well, if the gospel's so great, why are God's chosen people, the Jews, outside of his righteousness? And what he argues in chapters 9 through 11 is that God has been faithful to his promises and he will always be faithful to his promises and he will, in fact, restore Israel. That's chapters 9 through 11. Chapter 12, he takes a turn and he begins to talk about how we live out the gospel in all of our relationships. So chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is a pivot. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, now to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, now live out the gospel. Offer your entire being, 
your, your body as a representation of your mind and emotions and will and your physical being. That's the logical offer or service of worship. You give yourself to God. And as you do so, God transforms you. You're not conformed to the world, but you're transformed in the image of Christ and affects all of your relationships. He begins chapter 12 talking about our relationships with other believers. Chapter 13, we're going to talk about relationships with the world around us. Chapter 14, we'll move back into relationships with other believers. But what he's talking about is how do we live out the gospel in the midst of a culture that does not honor Jesus? Paul's going to give us three exhortations for how we stand out instead of blending in. So chapter 13, read with me again. Read with me beginning in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which, which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to to honor. So how do we honor Jesus in a world that does not? His first exhortation is this, submit to the authorities around you. Wow, Paul comes out swinging. I don't know about you, but I hear the word submission, and there's something in me that kind of goes, ooh, <laughs> I don't know that I really like that word. I kind of recoil from that word a little bit. I kind of like to be in charge of my own life. Submit to governing authorities, he said. Well, I got to be honest, there's sometimes when I really don't want to submit to governing authorities. I think that my taxes are too high. Property tax is too high. Income tax is too high. I don't really like that. I don't, you know, local authorities, well, they start these road projects right when football season's opening and they never end. And I don't like that. And that frustrates me. And the speed limit's too high in my neighborhood and it's too slow on the highways. And I'm having to submit to all these things and I don't want to submit. I don't know about you. You hear the word submission. Does anything in you kind of go, Ugh. Imagine that if you were living in Rome, under Nero. Perhaps you might recoil a bit when Paul comes out swinging and he says, do you want to stand out in the world around you and honor Jesus? Submit. Now, just in case you think, well, Paul's an, an outlier and this is an extreme statement and it's maybe, you know, not consistently true for all people for all times. Peter says almost exactly the same thing. First Peter chapter 2 Verses 13 through 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So, what does it mean to submit? Uh, in Greek, the word literally means to place under. Right? To submit means to place under. That is, if I'm submitting, I'm placing my will under the will of someone else. 
Notice in this context that it's a command or an imperative. That is, you can either choose to submit or choose not to submit. That is, submission is voluntary. He's not talking about subjugation or oppression. He's talking about voluntary submission, choosing to place your will under the will of someone else, which includes your attitude. Right? Choosing to do so without grumbling and complaining and disrespecting, but choosing to submit. Now, why is this so difficult? Maybe it's not for you, but it is for me. I like to be in charge of me. I remember when I was a kid, my mom told me to do things, and I didn't want to do those things. And my mom wanted me to submit my will to her will. Every day, my mom would say, clean up your room, but I didn't want to clean up my room, or I didn't want to clean up my room when she told me to clean up my room, so I would delay, and I would delay, and I would delay, and I would complain, and I would complain, and then finally when she nagged me long enough, I would go in my room, and I would take all my clothes, and I'd shove them under the bed, and I'd shove all my toys into the closet, and she would come in, and she would inspect, and she would say, this is not done to my standard, and I don't like your attitude, <laughs> right? And so I'd have to go back, and I would have to clean up the room again, and she wanted me to do it to her standard with a cheerful attitude. That was submission. Why is that so hard? Why was it so hard for me when I was a kid? Genesis 3, people. Genesis 3. You should memorize Genesis 3. You will understand a lot about yourself if you read Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve fundamentally did not want to submit their will to God's will. That's it. You know what they did? They passed that down to every single generation. They passed it down to your grandparents who gave it to your parents and your parents gave it to you. And guess what? You're going to give it to your kids and your kids will not want to submit to you. And you make them read Genesis 3, right? This is, this is it. it is, it's, it's like deeply rooted in our soul. And so one of the marks of a mature follower of Jesus Christ who's reflecting Jesus is that we are willing to bend our will to the will of another. Paul says, submit to earthly authorities. And because he knows it's so difficult, he offers two motivations for why we should do this. Read with me again in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. His first motivation is this. All authority has been ordained by God. All authority has been ordained by God. Whether that authority got into place through a vote or through bribery or through inheritance or through military conquest, as in the Caesars, God has allowed authority in your life. It's ordained by God. So when you submit to that authority, you're actually submitting to God. Why? Because all authority rests with God, and any earthly authority is delegated authority. It's authority that God has given to the earthly authority. So ultimately, that earthly authority is responsible to God. Let me give you two illustrations. Daniel chapter 4, verse 32. This is God speaking to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, who, he was the greatest ruler on earth at that point in time. He said, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. It, God has all authority and Nebuchadnezzar, you rule underneath his authority. Remember who you are. Romans chapter nine, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. 
Pharaoh, you rule at my good pleasure. And notice with both of these, Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh, greatest rulers on earth in their own eras, because they did not rule appropriately under God's authority, their authority was diminished or removed for a period of time because they are accountable to God. All authority placed in your life has been placed there by God. Whether it's governing authorities or parents or teachers or a boss, they've been allowed to be in authority over your life by God. And when you submit to them, Paul's saying here, you are actually submitting to God. You're honoring God. Second motivation, verse 3. He says, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. For, it is, for if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So second motivation is this. Earthly authority exists to promote good and to punish evil. That is, that is the ultimate purpose of earthly authority. So uh, last week at the end of this section, verse, uh, chapter 12, it says basically don't, don't take vengeance when somebody personally comes after you. Don't, don't, don't exercise wrath yourself, but government should. Right? Government is an avenger of evil. We see this uh, initially all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, that God instituted this concept of human government to punish evil and to promote or praise good on the earth. That is why government exists. Paul will say later in chapter 13, verse 7, that's, or chapter uh, 13, verse 6, that's why they uh, take taxes, ultimately. They collect taxes so that they can punish evil and promote good. That's the ultimate purpose of human government. Now, do they always do that well? No, they don't, right? Do they always punish sin appropriately? No, no. Do they always promote the right things and good things? No. Do they always levy the right amount of taxes? Absolutely not. Did they in Paul's day under Nero? No. Taxation was too high, and a lot of those tax dollars were used for things that were not appropriate or moral. What Paul is saying is this is, this is the ideal. This is why God gave human government. And now if you're like me, you say to yourself, okay, but surely there are exceptions, right? Surely there are, there are times and places where I don't have to submit. The answer is yes, but not as many as you might think. Okay? Not as many as you might think or want. Now notice it's really significant here that Paul says submit rather than obey. To obey means do what you're told. To submit means occupy your place in the hierarchy appropriately. What's the hierarchy? God, government, citizens. Okay? God, government, citizens. When government usurps God's authority, God will discipline that government. We can trust him to eventually discipline that government. Also, there may be times when government usurps God's authority that we have to say no. Let me give you three biblical illustrations. Um, right before the Exodus, Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives to kill all of the Jewish male babies and the midwives did not. They didn't. And they could have lost their lives for it, but they didn't because they knew that the government was commanding them to do something that God forbid. Uh, Daniel, uh, an edict was decreed, and Daniel was not to pray to his God, but God had told him to pray, so what did Daniel do? He opened the windows again, and he said, watch me pray. Willing to accept the punishment of that human government in order to obey God. And he was punished. He was thrown into the lion's den. 
Now, it came back around on his persecutors, but he was willing to accept the consequences for obedience to God. Uh, Peter and John, right after the day of Pentecost, they're, they're preaching a few days later, and the, the uh, Jewish authorities say, stop preaching in Jesus' name. And they say, sorry, Jesus said preach. But we're also willing to accept the consequences, which for them uh, included beatings and imprisonments and ultimately death. But they said, we have to obey God first, and you are usurping God's authority. You're telling us not to do something God told us to do. Or if the government tells you to do something that God said don't do, there are times when you have to resist. Now, the cultural context we live in is very different from this. In our cultural context, there are ways that we can disagree with government in a respectful way. So, you can vote. You can uh, write letters to the editor. You can serve in government. You can get elected to government. Right? You can do all of these things, though I would say in a respectful way. The, the, the timeless application, I would argue, is to, if you're going to resist government or disagree with government, you do so in a way that is respectful. Why? Because that will make you stand out in this culture. Because we live in a culture that increasingly does not respect authority. Whether it's, again, governing authorities or your teacher or your boss or your parents, when you are willing to be submissive, even when you disagree, you're willing to be submissive even when the person, in a sense, isn't worthy of your submission, that sets you apart, right? You don't blend in, you stand out. And people say there's something different about your life. So Paul's first exhortation is this. You want to honor Jesus in a world that does not submit to authority. Second, we honor Jesus in a world that does not honor him when we love one another. We love our neighbors. Verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For love, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So notice here in verse 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Paul is assuming you owe love to your neighbor. Get that? You are indebted to your neighbor. Why is that? Because you have received so much from God. And in this context, Paul is saying, don't pay God back, pay your neighbor. At Romans 1, verse 14, Paul uses the same vocabulary. He says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Same vocabulary. I'm under obligation. You could translate it. I am a debtor. I owe a debt to Greeks and to barbarians. He'll say, I owe a debt to Jews and Gentiles. I owe a debt to the young and the old. I owe a debt to the rich and the poor. I owe a debt to everyone. Why? Because I've received the gospel. Therefore, he said, I've got to come to Rome and proclaim the gospel because I am in debt. Right? I owe them something. Here in chapter 13, he's saying, you owe love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John wrote, we love because he first loved us. We don't love because the people around us deserve love. We love because we've received love. And consequently, we are in debt to the people around us because we have been enriched by Jesus. And he says something here that's just honestly just radical and expansive. He says, the one who loves his neighbor fulfills the law, right? Or 
the law is summed up or fulfilled in one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Now think about that for a minute. The law, in, in a Jewish mind, if he, he, he read that verse, he would say, okay, the law is the, the entire first five books of the, the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law. And Paul is saying, those five books are summed up in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Or you can reduce it just to that. Well, that's what Jesus had said. Great commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Ten Commandments were the Cliffs Notes, or the summary of what the rabbis called 613 discrete commandments inside the law. They said, that's summarized in the Ten Commandments. Jesus says it's summarized in two. How does that work? How do you reduce it like that? Well, remember the first commandments relate to your love for God. Right? Have no other idols before. Just worship God. Be, be exclusively devoted in your heart to God. That's the first part of the Ten Commandments. Second half relate to our relationships to one another. But it doesn't say in the Ten Commandments love. Instead, it says things like this. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet, right? Four negative commands. What's Paul saying? He's saying the opposite of love is taking. You shall not take your neighbor's wife. You shall not take your neighbor's life. You shall not take your neighbor's stuff. You shall not even want your neighbor's stuff, right? Love is the opposite of this. Love gives and it doesn't take because that's what God is like, God gives, God doesn't take. And he uses a really rare word here. He uses the word agape. If you've been around church for a long time, probably heard sermons on agape. It's a real common word in the New Testament, but it was a really uncommon word in the Greek literature outside the Old Testament, or outside the New Testament. Uh, there were other words for love. There's the word phileo, which meant affection, brotherly affection, or eros, which was sexual, erotic love. Paul didn't want to use either of those, so he, he grabbed this super rare word agape, and he infused meaning into it. What agape means is this. It means unconditional undeserved, acts to bless the other person. Okay, it's very active. It's not necessarily a superly charged emotional word so much as it is a word of choice and action. Choosing to bless, choosing to give, choosing to sacrifice, even for the person who doesn't deserve it. Why? Because that's what God is like. Matthew chapter 5 Sermon on the Mount, verses 43 through 45, Jesus said this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Notice the motivation is right there in the, begin in the middle. He says, so that you may be sons of your father. That is so that you can reflect the family to the world around you. By this will all men know that you are my disciples or my followers if you have love for one another. You serve, you sacrifice for one another. In this context, he's saying, now extend that, that love out to your neighbors. That is, anyone who is near. Literally, the neighbor is the one who is near. So the one who's outside of our, com our community, but nearby us. Can you sacrificially, unconditionally choose to serve that person? That is love. And that's not the way that the world functions. So let me give you just a few illustrations that I was thinking of uh, yesterday, as I was thinking about this text, ways that you could 
sacrificially, unconditionally, tangibly demonstrate agape love. Uh, visit a, wid- a widow in a nursing home who has no family nearby. They just stop your daily routine, your schedule, give your time, give your attention to somebody who can't give anything back to you. Buy groceries for a coworker who's struggling financially, expecting nothing in return. Listen to a friend whose marriage is in trouble. Sacrifice your time, your attention, your affection. Help an international student edit a paper in English. I'm just brainstorming, but I want to challenge you guys as an application. Who is nearby you, who's outside of our community, who doesn't know Jesus, but they're nearby you? What is one simple, tangible thing that you can demonstrate unconditional love to a person this week? That's really radical. That sets us apart. We don't blend in. We live in a world that takes, but our God gives. And when we sacrificially give to the people around us, it gets their attention, expecting nothing in return. Third, how do we honor Jesus in a world that does not? Walk in holiness. Verse 11, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Paul says, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. So before he gives the exhortation, he's going to give the motivation, and he says, salvation is right here. It's right at the door. This is one of the favorite themes also of Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 5. He said, you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What's he talking about? He's talking about the culmination or the fulfillment of our salvation. Remember, salvation is a really broad term. It can refer to justification, that is being declared righteous, forgiven the penalty of your sin. It's also sanctification, God overcoming the power of sin in your life. It's referring to glorification, that is ultimately being made like Jesus. And then when Christ returns and he sets all things right, right, that's the culmination of salvation. And Peter says, salvation's right here. Like it's right at the door. When is it coming? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. And the New Testament writers lived as if Jesus could return at any moment. Okay, it's as if history was, was moving forward. Right? And it's moving forward, and at the right time, the Son of God took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay for our sins, was raised up so that we could know we will have resurrection life. And then history took a turn. And it's just walking along the cliff, right? And we're just waiting. And at any moment in time, Christ could return and begin to set all things right. right? And it could happen at any moment in time. You know, it could happen like right now. Or right now. Or like right now, right? You know, and right now, honestly, I kind of go, that'd be great. I'm kind of, I've, I personally, I feel like I'm, I'm ready for that. There's nothing else I need to experience in life. Let's go right now. Just wait for it. Okay, how about right now? Like right now. Now imagine if we lived that way as if Jesus could return right now. Wouldn't that change your perspective on how you live today? Or if you say, well, all I've got is today. All I've got is this week. It could be at any moment in time. Wouldn't that change your priorities in the way that you live your life? Wouldn't you live differently than the world around you? Yes, you would. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, 
If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that just makes sense, right? Let me take a little tangent for a moment. Um, when we, we're going to cover our, our series on gender and sexuality after Easter, and when we get into that, that, that series, we're going to talk a lot about worldview. And worldview is, in a sense, your understanding of the nature of reality. Right? What's true and what's valuable? For example, is history actually moving a direction towards something? Or is it just a random series of events, as they used to say on the news, and now this, and then and now this, and now this, and now this, and now this, and these are just events that don't really tie together at all. It's not going a direction. Or do we believe that history is actually moving a direction, and the culmination is when Jesus Christ sets all things right, right? It's going somewhere. And when he begins to set all things right, we who have been made in his image are going to be accountable to him. Right? There is a creator, and the creator defines who you are, gives you identity, and gives you purpose, and holds you accountable for the way you live your life. And if that's your worldview, that's, if that's your understanding of the nature of reality, then you're going to live as if Jesus will return and will be accountable to him. If, you, if that's not your understanding of the nature of reality, well, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We should just turn out the lights now and go get drunk. Why not? And we should just go eat and gorge ourselves and then throw up and then eat some more and then drink some more and, and have sex with anybody we want. And that's how we should live our lives. We should live hedonistically or for pleasure because there is no accountability. There is no creator who defines who we are. But if we believe that the creator defines who we are and how we can actually flourish and, and become all that he made us to be, then it changes the way that we live our lives. And if we know that he could begin to set things right right now, then we live with this sense of urgency. I'm ready and I want to be prepared because I might see Jesus right now. I might see Jesus this afternoon. I might see Jesus in a week and it's going to change the way that I live my life. So he says in verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, here's the exhortation, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. He said, look, if Jesus could return at any moment, and as Peter said, the end is near, then take off the garments of darkness, put on the armor of light, put on Jesus, don't get comfortable in the world's clothing. Your life should be different. You ever had this experience where you showed up to an event and you didn't read the, right, the, the fine print and so you're wearing the wrong stuff? You're like, okay, I thought this was a costume party, but really it's business casual. Right? That's kind of awkward. That's kind of how you should feel all the time in the world. All the time. The clothes that you're wearing don't fit with the world because the world lives for the moment Delayed gratification, there's no reason for that. Why would I delay gratification? Because this moment is all I have if I don't believe in Jesus. But if I believe in Jesus, then he tells me who I am. And he tells me where I can find life and how I can flourish. And he says, take off those garments of darkness and live differently. Or as he says in verse 14, put on, robe yourself with Jesus Christ. 
and make no provision for your flesh in regard to its lusts. That is, create an environment in which you live so that it's hard to sin. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust because your willpower is a really weak thing. Create an environment in which it's just easy, in a sense, to walk in righteousness. Surround yourself with people who choose the same. Guard yourself, protect yourself, fill your life with truth so that there's not room for falsehood to come in so that you live differently, so that your garments are different from the world around you, so that you don't fit in. Why? Because the world lives for the moment, but we live to see Jesus. So how do we apply this? Uh, I want to challenge you. I'm going to give you a few moments this morning, but then this week I just want you to think a little bit about your life and think about the patterns of your life. Do you blend in or do you stand out? Do you blend in or do you stand out? Is there anything about your life that your friends who don't know Jesus, they go, yeah, that's really different. Could be your activities, could be your attitudes, could be your speech, could be any of those things. Do you, do you blend in or do you stand out? Right? So Paul's addressed three areas of our lives, this, this public part of our life where we're submissive to authority. We honor authority, we respect authority, even if we disagree with authority, whether that's government or parents or teachers, right? Whatever it is, professors, do you honor and respect the authority around you? He also talks about our our interpersonal life. Are you choosing to actively, sacrificially, unconditionally move toward your neighbor, the people who are near, who have a need, in a way that shows and demonstrates love? Does that stand out in your life, Uh, in your personal life? Are you creating an environment in which you can walk in righteousness? Do you live holy? Do you live differently from the world around you? Do what people see in public, does it match up with, with what's happening in private and in your inner world? Right, are you in step with the world or are you in step with the Holy Spirit? Do you stand out or do you blend in? I want you to take a few moments and ask the Lord, is there something in your life that needs to be rearranged so that people look at your life and they see that you honor Jesus and they're drawn to him because the way that you live your life. Okay, let's take a few moments quietly and ask God's spirit just to speak personally to each one of us and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask you to guide us, direct our steps so that we know how we can live differently in this world so that people are drawn to your son, Jesus. I pray that we would uh, begin to get really comfortable with uh, not fitting in, that we would understand that uh, the world doesn't believe in you, honor you, respect you, and so we are out of step, and, and that's okay. And that's normal for the history of, of your followers. But I pray, Father, that um, we would courageously lean into that. And we would lead lives that are just so radically different 
in the way that we honor Jesus, that they would, that they would see that, their attention would be arrested, and they would be drawn to the life of, of wholeness and flourishing that we experience in Christ. Father, I pray for this group of people, for us who are, who are here this morning during this service, that we would embrace the opportunity to honor Jesus in a world that does not. Thank you for that opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.